0: Hi everyone and welcome to the Padma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. Um, I hope you're all keeping well. And uh, today I have um, I have a returning guest and I have a new guest. So two guests in this episode. Um, my friend Kate Hendricks-Thomas is back for another episode. And with her is um, Kylan Hunter who is the co-author of a new book with Kate. So, welcome both to the show, and especially, Kailan, welcome for the first time.
1: Thank you so much for having us. I'm really looking forward to the
0: conversation. Yeah, and it's good to have you back, Kate. It's really good to have you back.
2: Thank you. It's always always good to chat with you. Appreciate the, appreciate the time.
0: Yeah, especially right now. You know, we need to be connecting with each other a lot more. Um, and again, what I want to acknowledge this has been recorded... the middle of the pandemic, and um, I know there's people who've been affected by it, and I'm hoping that you're okay. Um, And I'm sure it'll come up in our conversations. So, um, what do you want? What what I want to talk about today is uh, this book that you've you've written together. Um, It's called Invisible Veterans, Um, and it's a fascinating book. It's it's really fascinating because it's about... Well, tell you tell us what it's about, rather than me. Um, yeah, tell us what it's about.
2: <laughs> sure. Well, Kai and I uh, both served in the Marine Corps in what feels like another life uh, these days. And we, getting out of the military, stumbled through our own transition into civilian identities. And we later went back to school and started studying this whole notion of uh, what does it mean to do... Um, what does it mean to do military service well and, and in a healthy way? And especially transition, what does it mean to transition well and in a healthy way? And, uh, you know, I don't think we really intended to focus entirely on the experience of military women, but when you look at military transition, you, you keep running into these um you know, emergent themes, these, these same things that you hear over and over from, from different military women, and that the transition is really hard and largely unsupported by some of the traditional support networks that uh, support male, male colleagues and peers. And so what we wanted to do was bring voices together around that so there would be kind of a a symphony of voices saying the same thing to advocate for policy change and advocate for expansion of services that really meet the needs of women veterans trying to leave the service. And um, so Kai and I, we've worked together on some other things in the past, and we've written together in the past, and as we started having these conversations, it, it just became apparent to us that um we should try to put this anthology together. Right. Yeah. And I think
1: just to to echo what, what Kate was saying, this this really came out of a culmination of our lived experience and professional research. And it's not often that you get to do a project that is both very personal and very practical at the same time. Um, it's something that Kate and I both lived or transitioned from Having a military identity to having a civilian identity and what that meant for us in the sometimes very painful journey it took for us to get there, but one that is also, you know, with women being the fastest growing population of veterans in the country right now, an incredibly practical and timely um, piece as well. And so I think it's, it's always a just such a privilege to be able to do something that is so personal and so practical at the same time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's really, really powerful. It is it is really important. It's amazing how women's voices seem to get marginalised everywhere still, um, including veterans, um, you know. Um, well, and I think yeah. it's interesting because when
2: you're in the service, you're a numerical minority... Um, you are, somebody Somebody said to me, you're the most visible, uh, you're the most visible, serv- actually Kai, I think it was you that said it to me, the most visible service member and the most invisible veteran. I think I'm plagiarizing Kai and she's sitting right here. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we <we're> together. <see? laughs> so you go from this position where you're walking a tightrope and you're trying to to succeed in this highly masculinized environment uh, and then moving into the civilian population, where quite frankly, you're just not a normal girl anymore. And trying to figure out how to adopt a civilian identity, how to connect with um, civilian colleagues and peers, male and female alike, can be really challenging. And a lot of the places that military veterans get help, whether that's you know the veterans administration or the formal network of veteran service and military service organizations that out there that are out there, a lot of those places are not as accessible to military women. And I know my own research has shown that a significant percentage of military women don't opt in to these organizations. They're not joining the local veteran service organization and cultivating a strong veteran social support network because they don't feel like those are places that are relevant for them.
1: Mm. And I think it becomes so important to look at this population because, you're building off of what Kate is finding um, it's I think it's, it's really exciting that Kate and I came together to do this research because we approach we approach the work from different angles to get to the same point so I think we make a much more holistic picture Kate approaching from a more um, health centered focus both mental and physical health um, I come from a political science and public policy background um, my research looks at the depth of Towards integration that women take to get into the military the first time. So together we really build this incredible picture of what's mm. going on. Yep. Um, but why why it's so important what Kate's talking about women not opting into um, structures is that coming you know getting into the military there's actually quite a few safety nets that exist for you um, whether they are you know you have housing taken care of you have food taken care of you have a very clearly defined schedule and mission that you are always on, um, and transitioning out when you don't feel like you have any safety nets anymore, that break from I have a way that some of my basic needs are going to be taken care of to almost my most basic needs I can't figure out how to take care of because the institutions that are Supposedly designed to support this transition, don't recognize some very basic needs that women tend to have, both physically and um, mentally, emotionally. And so, this this I think we we create such a a comprehensive sort of like global view that yet um, it's always a privilege to put
0: that. So, what are the kind of what are the big challenges that that women particularly would have um, coming out of the military that? The, the biggest ones that aren't that aren't addressed you know that the, 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 you know, culture society whatever doesn't the, the, the system doesn't address
2: That's a huge question uh, and a really important one so I appreciate that uh, and that's been the focus of a lot of our a lot of our research and a lot of our energy and efforts um, and the the standard answer is always, It's there's a greater likelihood that a woman leaving the service has dealt with sexual harassment, sexual trauma, or intimate partner violence. The percentages of service women that have experienced these traumas are, you know, artificially they're high. The percentages are high, but there's also the more subtle issue of belonging and support of recognition during time in service. So I did some research with, um, with, a large, with a large organization back in 2017, and we asked active duty service members what their primary concerns were, and a, a significant percentage told us that they don't get recognition for their service, for their, what they're doing. And then we asked veterans what they were concerned about, and there was a direct correlation between this feeling of invisibility and this lack of recognition and some um, negative mental health outcomes when the service woman later became a veteran. Um, because again, it comes back to this question of, do I belong? Am I supported by the organization um, as I'm leaving the organization? And unfortunately for women veterans, that answer is really no. A simple example I can think of is this. Um, I was really involved with a veteran service organization. I loved working with them and volunteering with them. Their model was built for the single male veteran, but I was able to go and I felt comfortable. But the second I had my son, nothing was available to me because very few events were child-friendly or, or offered child care. And service women and women veterans are more likely than their male, male colleagues to have dependent children for which they're responsible. So something as simple as having an event for veterans with no child care available excludes a significant percentage of single parents or or parents in need of child care that would have liked to come to this sort of thing. And these aren't conversations that are really happening within our nonprofits. Nobody is talking about the fact that women veterans aren't showing up because we're not creating the right the right um, environment for them, and we're not putting in place the support mechanisms that would allow them to participate. And I think Kate raises
1: a really, really important point there with regards to wanting to be involved but not being able to be involved. And I think one of the, the things, and you're talking about what are some of the surprising things that we find, is that women veterans are Veterans, and that that's often a desire to have that part of service um, front and center. You're, as as Kate mentioned, you're not having recognition for service is actually a, a really big detriment to um, a lot of women who are you who have been serving and who who want to be more involved. And I think there's often a misnomer there that women want different types of activities than their male veteran counterparts. In some cases, that might be true. In other cases, it's more, no, they want to do the same things because they are activities that give you this sense of belonging like you were back in again. They're the people that have a lot of these shared experiences. And you see this really particularly with um, your veterans who have spent time in a deployed environment. Like having having that camaraderie of being with the same people that saw you through this tough environment is something that, that women really want to go be a part of. Because of very you know, structural factors, and child, children are a a the number one where the burden still disproportionately falls on women for childcare, that puts a, a double bind barrier. And then you have women now in these situations where they're like, well, I I still want to be involved, but I also want to be uh, a parent, and you you start to then even further deteriorate a lot of mental health outcomes because women start to become concerned around like, well, am I a bad parent or did I make a wrong decision to become a parent Um, because I now can't do the things that were good for my mental health before. And so you you get a lot of these compounding effects um, come from not having some of these structural things in, in place or thinking that just, oh, well, women want to go have tea parties. They don't want to go on the you know, hiking, outdoors adventures that the, the men tend to do. Well, no, like, a lot of times we want to do the same things because they're the things that remind us of our service. We just want to be able to do them in a way that faces the new reality that women often face when they get out of service.
0: Hmm, crumbs. It's, it's just, it's incredible how the patriarchy just still, is still very much present in their, um, and in their systems. And I think the, the thing that really got me was the. I actually spoke to a veteran for my podcast uh, an interview um, and a woman veteran who had had exactly that experience and um, who had had domestic violence and who had um, you know felt kind of excluded Um, and it's, it's just awful that that is not addressed you know and I mean that's why a book like this is really really important because um, it's a bit where you've got stories, um, sharing, sharing testimonies and, and things, but also kind of research as well. And, um, you know, because we need to have space to process. Um, I mean, it's, in essence, it's about grief. It's like when you leave, there's a grieving. When you leave the services, there's, there's, a, there's a grieving, you know, that what you've left behind. And part of the process of doing that is to stay in community. With the people that you were with before, or the type of people that you were with before, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's so many, there's so many kind of crossovers that I see, like in terms of leaving community because, um, and then not being able to go back, Um, and um, and or just
2: being kind of uh, not recognized within that community. There's a story in the book that I really love by a woman named uh, Tony Rico. And she writes about um, spending social time with her husband, uh, and she and her husband had both just gotten out of the army. and they're spending social time with people uh, with whom they had deployed. And she had been on that deployment. She had stories to tell. Everybody was telling stories. And when she lifted her voice to say, "Oh, yes, and do you remember this one time, the, the men uh, in this social gathering spoke over her. They kind of disregarded her story. There was this sense that she wasn't there. She wasn't really part of it, even though in reality she absolutely was. She had been overseas with this exact same group of people, but there wasn't the same camaraderie opportunity offered to Tony that there was to her husband, the, it, the ability to share past experiences and laugh about old things, to process and meaning make. Um, you know, through the telling of experience and story, she was talked over and, and disregarded in that environment. And people probably didn't do it purposefully. They probably didn't yeah. in any malicious way try to do it. But it, it was easy to dismiss her service because she's an invisible veteran. And and that also you know that
1: that story is it's one of those ones that is both so illuminating and also very painful to read because I know all of us have had the exact same experience ourselves, um, and and that you know very micro level interaction that you that 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 illuminates right there this almost dismissal of like well are you really there it's easy to sort of write write her out of the story has real impact on women when they're coming back into civilian life and trying to essentially leverage some of what should be the benefits of military service for future gain and we think about some of those things like ascension into public office you know military service is often one of those things that women, that citizens of any any country and you know the the UK has a, a, a pretty proud tradition too of military becoming military leaders becoming civilian leaders like that's that's a very yeah. Uh, yeah. democratic tradition. Um, it's been very hard for women to capitalize on that um, because it's often assumed that women aren't, quote-unquote, real veterans, where you you see men very quickly sort of ascend into these positions. Oh, he's a war hero. He's going to make a great leader, all of those things. It's so much harder for women to be able to Tell that story, and then if they do, they start getting accused of being braggadocious and trying to exploit their military service. And so it's this this real double bind. Like, and, and these are exactly the people you mm. in leadership positions. You know, th- these are people who have um, a dedication to serving in their country, who have proven leadership experience. You know, mm-hmm. who, who have all of these qualities that we want in a good leader. Yet. The the public still has a very hard time allowing women to stay in these narratives, and so there there yeah. is a continued double bind that is is really really troubling.
0: Yeah, I think this is really provided in America. I mean, in the UK, we've we've had two women prime ministers already. Um, I don't think the British people have a problem voting for a woman to lead the country. Um I think. But that's not to say that there's still not patriarchy in this country. I mean, I'm not... I wouldn't deny that at all. <laughs> it's very, very present. But I see it in America where... Where you've had some amazing female candidates for president. Uh, this time around and last time. And they don't get elected. And they're not getting... Some of them aren't even getting to be candidate this time. Like, this, You know, I think the best candidate was a... The best democratic candidate was a woman this time. But the, the nominee's going to be a white man again. And so... I mean that, and I actually heard somebody tell me that where they live, uh, the place that they live in America, that uh, there are men who will say they will not vote for a woman if they're a woman candidate on whatever party they are, um, which is really like horrifying. Um, so there's a lot of work to do, and I mean it shouldn't have to be done nowadays in 2020. We shouldn't have to be still having this conversation, but um, but that's I mean again that's,
2: Sorry? That can be hard when we're having these conversations about how to make transition better for women veterans. I mean, our own transition from active duty was, you know, over a decade ago. And the young women that come after us are facing so many of the same issues and so many of the same um, belongings, support problems. So there's really, I really do think that there is an effort um, in the in the The women's national security community, uh, there's an effort for women to kind of lift their voices and explain the experience of service women and women veterans, um, and to advocate for policy change, and to advocate for organizational change and and increased inclusion, um, decreased. Harassment and exclusion and services not available at, at organizations like the Veterans Administration. There's a real push, especially because the population of women veterans is growing, and it's growing internationally. Um, you know, I, I know this is something that Canada, Australia, and the UK are, are focused on as well because they they have, just as America does, increased percentages of women serving.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it is really important. And- yeah, and I was just thinking about the context that of what's happening in the world right now with, with the pandemic. And a lot of people are going through a, a grief, trauma experience. Um, and when they come out of this, when we eventually come out of this period, they're going to be in the same position as these women, going to be... Looking for community, looking for people with shared experiences, looking for a support network to um, to get behind, who can give them what they need to survive, Um, and it's so important that we have we have those in place, and and also we have a we have a society that allows for all different groups of people to be included in that.
1: Absolutely, And I think one of the, you know, the, the the pandemic right now has been isolating and completely devastating for many, many reasons. And um, many, many people are, are feeling it in a variety of different ways, both in terms of physical health issues, also economic um, issues and struggling from uh, small businesses being Shut down, um, people in the hospitality industry, you know, there's the, the economic um, issue, the physical health issue, the toll that it's taking on our, our healthcare systems and the healthcare workers and what they're having to deal with, knowing that there's, um, in, in the US in particular, a shortage of uh, equipment often for them to, to be able to do their job and they're experiencing trauma in a, in a wholly different way. And
0: mm.
1: seeing that, but one of the, in trying to look for a positive, silver I hate to even say it's a positive coming out of this, but a a potential side effect to carry forward that could be beneficial is that we're also seeing people being able to make affinity-based community across physical distance in a way that wasn't really talked about as meaningfully before. Um, in terms of, you know, we've seen these Skype technologies on the on the rise and Zoom and these these virtual meetings and gatherings and it's in, in some communities, it's allowing a beginning of a conversation to be able to openly talk about being afraid and being unsettled and being un uncertain and um, tapping into those things in a real way that I hope when we come out of this, we can continue and mm-hmm. um. You know, I think a very small story out of this is that as a, you know, I'm an adjunct professor at Georgetown University um, as as well, in the million hats I wear, and we've transitioned everything into virtual classes. And going from a traditional seminar where everyone's sitting around a table to virtual is is hard, and it's awkward, and it's weird, and you can't necessarily gauge reaction and like talk about intimate harm subjects like rape and war, which are the things that we're we're talking about. Um but I got a note from one of my students the other day just saying, you know, thank you for making us feel that it's okay to not feel okay right now. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to not actually feel comfortable with the way that we're experiencing the world and to express discomfort in how we we are. And I hope that this experience is giving others a lot of empathy for those that have experienced trauma before so that we can come out of it a more informed and concerned public mm. about what that might look like.
0: Yeah, I've been feeling that as well. That you know, that it's a really interesting experience for me because having experienced grief and trauma myself, um, and spent a lot of time processing that in a in a healthy way in the last few years. This is quite familiar. Um, that's not to say it's good, <laughs> but um, that familiar isn't always good. Uh, but it is familiar, and so I've been able to notice myself and what's going on in myself and my habits and my reactions and... I've been able to be a bit more intentional about how I'm processing it because I've done the work already. Um, That's not to say it's easy, it's not. Or that I get it right all the time because I don't. But um, I think when we become more trauma-informed and become more self-aware as well of how we respond to trauma, that, that actually helps us be more healthy, you know. And that doesn't mean we get it right all the time or that our lives will be perfect again. It just means that when conflict comes we're able to deal with it in a more healthy way than we were before.
2: Well, and I think that's an important that's an important point that all of the contributors to invisible veterans tried to make. Um, you know, regardless what you know, whether they were talking about uh, legal issues women veterans face, or um, financial, or housing, or whatever whatever issues they were talking about, they really tried to emphasize the way that we are able if we demonstrate if we demonstrate empathy and extend a hand to one another the way that we're able to help one another and if being forced to do that for the next few months um offers all of us uh, a little bigger slice of said empathy i think that's a good thing
0: yeah i do i think when i think we need to become more empathetic as a as a society anyway uh, I mean, I'm highly sensitive, so I'm naturally empathetic. I'm, I'm probably over-empathetic uh, in some ways. In that I take on, naturally, a lot of the emotions that are all around me um, um, just because of my brain chemistry. But I think, yeah, it's, I think we lost that as, as a culture, that um, we, we'd seen things in a very kind of binary dualistic way rather than listening to people's stories because when you hear people's stories it changes it changes your perception of what of their actions and of um their decisions and and all of that and it doesn't make excuses but it but it's but it explains things um and helps you empathize with people and i think when i would
2: think that's exactly why we wanted to include the personal narratives and the personal stories, mm. exactly what you just said. It explains things. It humanizes it. Um, rather than just saying, we have a belonging and support issue for women veterans, you can actually hear from, hear from you know, Erica. Here's Erica's experience of belonging and support issues. and I, I think that's really important um, you know, to make it relevant to a reader that may not have experienced the same issue. Yeah. yeah.
1: in those personal stories, you can see there, there's one that I I would argue that everybody can find a piece of themselves in the personal stories that are there, even if you never served a day of your life in the military. Um, I think that that's another big I think side effect of writing this book. I don't I'm not to say it was our intent or purpose because I think it came out of it was also just. Building some of that human connection to bridge the civil military divide. Um, You know, there are unique challenges that veterans face, but there are challenges that everybody faces. And so, if we can use our veteran experience to lean in and help somebody go through a different sort of challenge, or somebody who's faced a completely different challenge can start to say, Yeah, I can see why. It's harder for this person, so I want to advocate to make things better for for this community too. Because I can I can recognize that this is a challenge, but I had support through some other sort of institution. These people deserve similar type of support too. So it's it's also I think one of the especially in these times right now where we're all as a as a global society learning a lot more about what resilience processing trauma fear uncertainty a lot more about what all of those things mean I, I think it's more relevant than ever to be able to have a have a book that humanizes a problem that's really hard to talk about that nobody really wants to talk about a problem.
0: yeah that's true that's very true um, and that's why that's when I saw what the book was about I was, I, I, lo- I immediately kind of loved the idea of it because, because it's got stories in it because people can connect with stories you know um stories make sense of facts like you can put all the research if you have just the research and the knowledge that that's one thing but when you have when you put that alongside real life stories that makes it compelling i think and people connect with it um and that's why i think this book will connect with a lot of people because of that that kind of combination it has of stories and research and um how it aligns them yeah So, yeah I mean, what did you What did you learn I mean, how did this How did writing this And researching this book affect you Both of you Mm, Well,
2: I mean, I, I would definitely say You know, I tend to I tend to love and appreciate the research So, it's easy for me to say, okay, these are our percentages of MST. These are our percentages of opting in to support networks. You know, it's easy for me to point at numbers and say, here are these empiric- here are these empirical problems. But I think I didn't expect to be moved so moved as I was by the writing of several of our contributors. Um, I, I didn't expect to see so much of myself in in everyone's story. And there was something I identified with in absolutely, absolutely every vignette um, that a, a woman veteran author submitted, and, and that surprised me. Interesting. Yeah,
1: I think you know that that's that's definitely a big a big piece. Um, one thing that actually that so I'll, I'll have to say something different that surprised me. So I can't say the same thing. But one, you know. Um, we have one of our, our research contributors um, is a civilian woman, mm-hmm. uh, a professor that we, we both have worked with um, in the past on things. And what actually really surprised me was how, was in conversation with her back and forth through the editing and the peer review process and and, and working through it, how it fundamentally changed the way, like working on this project, changed the way that she engaged with other other people and other organizations. And I think it's one of those, like seeing the, you know, she, she had brought up, you know, doing work on women veterans, which was a, you know, her, her work tends to normally focus on rebel groups that they see. And like it's, it's, it's very, she's a very quanti person who does a lot of, uh, um, you know, regression analyses and like, look, here's our predictive value that groups of people will behave certain ways. And she's like, you know, I was working with such a small end population that I became very concerned and caring about the fact that these are individuals. And I think it was really interesting for me to see, you know, here's a, what I would think of as like, you know, a hardcore social science researcher who's very, you know, by the book, this is just a thing, coming and saying, you know, Doing work on a on a population that is actually this small really does change the way that I I think about people when I see what sort of adverse outcomes might be impacting them, and it's it's making me engage with my own members of Congress different and ask them for different funding priorities type of thing. So that that was really surprising for me that it actually you know one one chapter in a book really like got someone to change, but it was a uh, it was it was one of the biggest surprises I had. Um, in working
0: on this book, yeah, I think working on, yeah, you know, I've written books as well, and I know that the process of writing a book really does have an impact on, on you. It, it changes you, and usually in ways that you don't predict or can't foresee. Um, so it's really interesting to hear that. Um, I mean, what, what's your biggest hope for this book, um, especially in kind of the, the context now that we're in with. The pandemic and things and people um going through that similar experience what what, what are your hopes uh, for this book
2: i wish i had the ability i wish i had the uh the sales ability or the 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 verbal acumen to convince People that don't know anything about the military or don't know anything about the veteran transition experience to read it. I think that again, uh, because we emphasize so much, we're going to tell you what the issues are. We're, we're going to put numbers on those issues, but we're also going to explain how those issues impact, you know, impact Erica and uh, you know Teresa and, and the other contributors of the book. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a way um, to convince people that don't think that these issues facing the military uh, and, and military transition impact them. I wish I had a way to say, read this, it does impact you. The civilian-military divide impacts American public policy, at, 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 you know, an incredible amount. So you need to know about this. these people, you need to know about these issues, and, um, you know, the first step is extending a hand in your own community, looking around for the for the veterans in your community that are in need of connection. Um, but then there's so much more at a policy level that can be done.
1: I I would absolutely echo that. You know, I think it's when we're in this time of isolation, confusion, uncertainty. It I think it's more important than ever to see how. Um, what sort of stories and experiences can actually bridge divides and you know my my hope is that people see this is that a um you know we're we're people um we're people when we get sent to war and we're people when we come home we're not a line item on a budget that often i think there there can be especially in an election year i think that's the other side is we're in this moment that's a um, a difficult moment because of the pandemic in uh, the States. It's also an election year and uh, veteran ideas kind of get touted out and flags waved around and like, uh, gay support the troops as a, as a way to, to get people to vote for you. Um, it's often feeling very hollow. And I think they, one of the, the fact that there are these personal stories um, in this book can help remind people that we're, we're real. Um, and that the, the decisions that are made have real consequences on real people's lives, and if we can be a, a little more empathetic in our in our daily lives and interactions with people, but also a little more empathetic when we go to the ballot box and look at um, what the the policies that our our leaders are saying are actually going to do to help or hurt people. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot that can be learned there too. Going into to this coming election year,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, and just finally, like what? What's one less, one thing, one uh, note of solidarity or hope or guidance, maybe that you would offer to somebody who is maybe going through that that process of, of I mean, not just in the military, but just generally of, of who's experiencing the the kind of grief and the, um, the confusion and the, the yeah you know, the anxiety of of what we're going through. Um, um, generally with, with the pandemic and, and what, what they can do to come out of this healthier and to process what they're going through in a healthy way.
2: I would definitely say all of my research, so much of my research, comes back to the foundational bedrock of social cohesion, social support, and social connection. So I would say, you know, really looking for places to connect that you're not already connecting uh, is one of the healthy, healthiest things that you can do for yourself. Whether you're a woman veteran leaving the military, wondering what your new life is going to look like, or you know you're a young single uh, homebound by a by a pandemic virus, connecting wherever possible and connecting across difference and being willing to get a little uncomfortable as you connect, I think those are the most important things you can do for your for your overall well being and health. Mm. Yeah. In, in, in addition to the, to the connection, um,
1: is really focusing into how how this experience is, is changing you and then what sort of change you want to see in the, the institutions around you as a result. Um, my r- research focuses a lot on uh, mechanisms of integration, which is a fancy way of saying how do people have space in the institution to actually be able to change it. Um, you know, like how are you able actually to to affect change? And um, I think there's a lot of inter, like there's a lot of forced introspection going on right now, uh, both about ourselves and what we need in community. I think the case point to saying like who do we need to be reaching out to? What sort of community are we actually craving right now? But also, what sort of change do we need to be able to? to see to avoid something like this happening and to make it better for those that are going to, to come um, before us. Um, one of the one of the, the kind of strange findings that's come out of my research around um, gender integration, and uh, it actually was said to me by a, um, a Norwegian woman I was interviewing for some work on that, is that she said, you know, I, I really get frustrated when people always tell me that it will get better. Because it is actually never going to get better, but you are. And I I really, like, that's been something that, like, those kind of nuggets you get when you do a lot of interview work. People are like, oh, the people say really profound things. But I think it's, it's really important for, for people to recognize right now that if we sit around and just expect it to get better um, – It is always going to be bad, whatever that it is, whatever the the it in the world of the the time that we're suffering, there's always something out there that is going to be bad. Um, But we can really fundamentally get better through this. And we it it sounds a little cliche, I think, to say, like, you can make your own circumstances because I don't believe all of that, like bad things do fundamentally happen, but we can develop tools and then how are we actually going to share those? How are we going to use them? How are we not going to keep them to ourselves and actually make the institutions and our communities better for what we've been through? And that's, that's, I think, one of the big lessons of hope coming out of our research for this book. I mean, the fact that so many women were willing to come forward and talk about hard traumatic things. I mean, these are, these are stories, whether they are just not having a social home or Mm -hmm. being assaulted, you know, whatever the 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 range of them to be able to come forward and say, I know it's still bad out there, but I am going to share what I learned through this, uh, my circumstance so that it can be better for somebody else. They can have more tools. They can have the, the better that, that I learned. Um, that's one of the biggest lights, like how willing people
0: really were to talk to It's so encouraging to me fantastic that's really great thank you. thank you for sharing that that's really fantastic wisdom thank you and thank you everybody for both coming on the show again um thank you for sharing it's been really really great and i'm i'm excited to see what this book does and the impact it has thank you
1: thank you so much for having us
0: and you're welcome Um, you're absolutely welcome and um, yeah well take care everybody and um, stay healthy and take care of yourselves Um, I'm sure we'll talk again soon